We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Today's guest is John Boyd, the Assistant Director of the Office of Biometric Identity Management at the Department of Homeland Security. We're going to talk about facial recognition, how it's used, um, some of the other biometrics that DHS might be looking at. Tell us a little bit about uh, OBIM. Okay, just a couple of points for you. Uh, OBIM was established in uh, 2013, primary mission to provide uh, uh, storage, matching, sharing, uh, limited analysis to DHS. And uh, our major customers are Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And uh, we do this in in the support of really five of the major missions for for DHS, uh, Uh defending terrorism, uh, and enhance security, um, secure and manage our borders, uh, enforce and administer immigration laws, and um, ensure uh, resilience to disasters. We support FEMA in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, some stats that people may find interesting. As of June of this year, and it's slowed down recently with, with the COVID pandemic, our gallery size is 267 million subjects. Wow. Okay. With a watch list of 15.4 million making it the largest unclassified automated uh, biometric identification system in the U.S. Uh, on average, we process, again, pre-COVID, but we, we are slowly moving back up, about 340,000 subjects processed in IDENT every day. Now, that's the biometric collection. Yeah. Everyone from uh, DHS components to State Department for people that are coming in by visas and the like. Uh, and that's that's uh, face, finger, and eye. The overwhelming majority are, are based on fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's good to know. And, and the other thing, at least for I'm assistant director, my main purpose and, and mission is in the Futures Identity Team. We're exploring and, uh, emerging technologies and capabilities uh, to fulfill these uh, components' anticipated needs. So it's, it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. What does futures identity mean? Does it mean going beyond, uh, what does it mean? <laughs> I, I get that a lot. It, we're looking two years and out. Uh-huh. And so sometimes it's we're, we're getting a pull from a customer that they can't onboard and it's not within the two-year time frame. So we partner, I fund DHS S&T as well as NIST. In some cases, it's not just building new code, it's, it's building the, the standard. For, for, for that code. And, yeah. and so it involves variations on current modalities. I mentioned face. A lot of the, the matches now were from mugshots like this, right? And increasingly from the law enforcement and other homeland security public safety aspects, it's for the unconstrained face. There needs to be some work done and we're exploring that area. Fingerprints. Uh, as a result of, of COVID, COVID, there's a, a real drive to be six inches, preferably six feet away from someone and get an image and process that. That's that's part of what we do. And then get the technology to a sufficient technology readiness level 
to where we make the determination, do we transition it over to production or do we uh, do we need to go back and do more development or, or put it on the shelf if it doesn't work? So you expect one of the effects of uh, the COVID response will be to make people more sensitive on privacy issues? The COVID pandemic has been, in a way, a catalyst. This is based on analysis when I was back as Secretary of Defense when we met mm-hmm. about 10 years ago. Yeah. Of analyses. What we're going to is collection at a distance, on the move, and increasingly from non cooperative. You're still going to have the cooperative, I want to get a benefit, but other non cooperative, mm-hmm. and further out, uncooperative. But that, that's a tough one. That, that's a tough one. I may not even know the sensor's there. I, uh, I know it's there, but I'm not doing anything to help, I'm not doing anything to hinder. And, and the pandemic seems to have been a, a catalyst in this effect that what we were going toward anyway has mm-hmm. really, uh, seriously advanced the, uh, uh, the time frame. So it's, it's a challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity for us to mm-hmm. do this right, um, engage with the public, engage with industry, academia, folks like you, and, and, again, be upfront about what it can do, what it can't do, and what are we doing to address the gaps. What does do it right mean for you? You know, it's funny. I was at Cleveland State University on a panel on this uh, about eight months ago. And on one side of the panel, it was it's a problem because it's too accurate. The other side was it's a problem because it's not accurate enough. So I, I kind of made mention of that without, mm-hmm. you know, going too far. Some people simply don't want to use the technology. Right. The proverbial cow has left the barn on that one, okay? Yeah. And so now it's what are we doing, I would submit, to make it as accurately as possible. That's some of the things I was going to mention here. With the latest round of face vendor recognition tests from NIST, with some of the best algorithms, they're up in the high 90s. So the accuracy built on, some, lar- about largely, significantly on machine learning, they've driven out a lot of those errors, which has been uh, the source last summer of Congress in talking with uh, the, uh, not only uh, industry, but the executive branch on, this would call it differentials, involving uh, gender, race, ethnicity, and, and the like. And so I think that's a, that's a huge piece is that, that we need to be more accurate. People are also interested in what are we doing with the data once we have it. Mm. So you've yeah. got an image, you've got a match, it's John Boyd, he's walking on the street corner, and then what are you linking it with and, and what is it being used for? The value of biometrics lies in the application. I think this is something we, we talked about back in 2011, yeah. 2012. It, it's about identity. It's that group of attributes sufficient to make a decision about someone. Do we allow John Boyd on the network? Do we allow him in the building, federal or otherwise? Is, is he the bad guy we're looking for? Is he on a watch list, terrorist, or outstanding arrest warrant? That's the value of this. It's not just in going and doing biometrics, do, you know, doing face recognition. Sure. At a distance on the move, so contactless, and then it's it contactless fingerprints. We're getting a, a, a dramatic increase in the pull from our components, DHS primarily, but others, on things like contactless fingerprints, face, not just a mugshot like right now, pretty good lighting, even even expression, 
It's it's uh, unconstrained face, faces in the wild, particularly bad actors. So COVID has changed your business? It's it's changed the rate of acceptance of some of our customers in the in the use of contactless biometrics. Where there was mild interest before, there's significant interest now. How much do you think the public knows about this? I mean, we know the privacy groups know about it a lot, and the Hill appears to be paying attention. But how about the public? Is this something they're going to run into more frequently? Yes. And that's why this is, I think, a really good timing. And again, I really appreciate being, being invited on the podcast. We're seeing things from media now that there are PIAs out for review, the privacy impact assessments, and, and the re- reviews are anything but glowing. And it gets back to, in the PIAs, the, the discussions around the limitations of the system, the uncertainties around the system. Uh-huh. So all the more important for us to, to have that conversation to separate fact from fiction and what are we working on and what do we expect out of the, out of the systems now. I would submit that we need to be more forward-leaning in communicating across a range of stakeholders, and in the public in particular, to help them understand why we're doing this, what are the pros, what are the challenges, mm-hmm. opportunities, what we're doing now, what we can expect, and then within these gaps or seams, what, what are we addressing and when? And, and it's really that that's my team's, I would say, central purpose is to address those gaps. And one other thing around that, back to your question just about FI, the other aspect is the technology push. In some cases, technology gets ahead of policy and even user needs. They don't even know that that capability, a capability would be enabled by this technology. And uh, one in particular is quantum computing. Uh, I've been out on the West Coast, talked with people that are operating adiabatic quantum computers. It's got a, a couple, a, a number of years of development before I believe that that's useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's something that we're tracking so that mm-hmm. when that does become more mature and we can use that, we're ready to bring that in to our system to, in the end, help our customers complete their mission uh, smarter, better, faster. Yeah, quantum surprised me because I thought it would take longer to reach maturity. I think it's closer than we think sometimes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, a couple of years ago, you know, I would say quantum, don't worry about it. It's years away. I don't say that anymore. No, I, I agree. I, I wish I could give it a year because we have our own timeline. We have, we have a, a science and technology roadmap. In fact, uh, I'm getting a, uh, an implementation plan in the next couple of weeks. Quantum is on there. The t- yeah. So we, it's prioritized. There's, there's timelines. Think of a highway and the off-ramps and on-ramps. It, it, it all comes down to time. When is it ready enough to, to bring over and start to do real testing and evaluation with that to see how we can leverage that uh, to mm-hmm. get uh, more accurate, more timely, more complete responses? That's really what, what our, our customers are looking for. When um, you got a lot of attention from the Hill, and I'm not going to ask you about that, but what I am going to ask you is, if you thought about legislation, what kind of legislation would be most helpful for you? I mean, what would you like to see come out? Where are the gaps? I mean, we've talked about this. And, you know, one of the things with new technology and with the way identity has changed because of that technology is 
sometimes the old laws don't map that well. Uh, where would you like to see legislation? Well, it's there's what do we want it to do and what do we not want it to do. And I would submit that what we don't want to do, as we're seeing with some current proposed legislation, is mm-hmm. to come, in a sense, out of the, 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 the sprint shocks from a race standpoint and, and stop all face recognition. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's more of a broad brush we don't know enough, so so don't use it. So I, I would just caution uh, not using the technology because it's it is being used now to verify that one to one match people's identity to allow them a benefit, and and it's also being used in conjunction with other aspects because uh, right now it's it's not lights out for that identification the one to many match. It's it's one aspect of other things that are being used in law enforcement to improve public safety. Along with that, we do need to think through the, the privacy, civil rights, civil liberties aspects. Whatever we do, we need to, to very carefully factor that in. And that, that spans, and our continuum is the collection of biometrics, the, the matching storage, mm-hmm. both of the image, the template, and the match result, sharing it with only those people that are that are authorized to see it. And we have to prove that we, it doesn't go to people who aren't authorized. Right. Or other analysis, and then the component decides, makes a decision. So we, we need to think about the legislation across that continuum. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not just the image. It's not just the matching. It's, it's how it's used. Mm-hmm. And, again, back to the, the privacy policy, uh, and, and that's one reason we have an, an entire de- dedicated team on our staff. And we've got a, a small team, but it's a team dedicated to all the privacy aspects to make sure we've got that, uh, as well as other policy-related matters. And they deal with the components, privacy folks, as well as headquarters, privacy, uh-huh. making sure that, that those, those business rules that come from the policies that are agreed upon are programmed into the system. For the, for the sharing of data. That, that's very key. And one of the other things that we can build off of is what, what other nations and consortiums are using, like GDPR in, in Europe. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've, I've done, I, I did quite a bit of traveling last year. London, Darmstadt, Germany had interactions with at least London, the, the face recognition. Mm-hmm. And, but I got briefed on some of their prototypes and pilots. And mm-hmm. some would say GDPR is very restrictive. Even within those restrictions across multiple countries, they, their technologies are advancing leaps and bounds. Mm. That's one area where we really need to ensure that we're partnering with them and learning with them, which is one reason we joined the European Association of Biometrics, where mm. we're a partner with them to help understand what they're doing, not only technology standards, but also policies and, and plans and how we might leverage those advances. Yeah, we um, we actually have a project looking at the UK because they seem to be the most advanced in some ways. It's also they're the easiest, to, they're the closest to us in terms of law. So is that, how precedential is that for you? Do you look to the UK laws, you know? Well, I, 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 I believe so. That would be one other aspect. We've got a very tight, uh, uh, a, a very good uh, relationship with, with the, the home office. Mm-hmm. 
in the UK. So we are very interested in not only their technological advancements, but what they're doing from a policy perspective. So we will be very interested in that. So some of this sounds a lot like what you were doing at DOD. I mean, how much can you draw from your DOD experience? I leveraged what I did in DOD a lot. Okay. And the analyses that uh, I uh, led, uh, at least the funding of, Mm -hmm. Uh, the the advancements in technology and, and just as important on the policy side, uh, I take those elements that are applicable and leverage them in, in DHS on, on about a weekly basis. Mm. Because a, a lot of the things, if you look at it, I go back to identity. From the perspective of, I, I submit that one way to think about this is that there are three meta applications for identity. Uh, access control, I, I mentioned mm-hmm. before, logical and physical. Yeah. Uh, there's screening, and again, this is not necessarily DHS policy. It's just it's just a framework, right? Uh, the screening is looking for bad actors, so that's that's the one to many or one to few. I'm looking for the person on the watch list. I'm looking for the mm-hmm. person with the outstanding arrest warrant, or just to pick up and question. And then there's search, which could mm-hmm. be a one to many. It could be one to one. It could be the down pilot in the case of DOD. It could be the uh, the kidnapped wife, right? Mm-hmm. And so in a way, at the at a higher level of abstraction, what we're doing at Biometrics for all these different uh, uh, use cases, it can be rolled up in, into those applications. Mm-hmm. I will also tell you that the legal authorities within DHS are are much broader than mm-hmm. the DOD had. Why is that? Just the way the agency was structured, or right? This goes back to the the uh, opening days of DHS huh. with original laws. Now, that just because you have a legal authority to do that, there's again policy, privacy, civil rights, civil liberties. There's a range of other things that that are mm-hmm. going to, have to be uh, ironed out. But uh, like I said, the uh, legal authorities here, when the department was set up, are, are, are quite broad for biometrics collection and use. So you don't really need much in the way of legislation to enable what you're doing, or you need legislation to set up guardrails for what you're doing? What's the I, – I know I'm focusing a lot on the Hill, but we'll get off the Hill after this. What, what, I would just submit that we, we have to be judicious in how we set up those guardrails. Again, right now – some of the legislation, at least in terms of face recognition and others, it, it becomes concrete bunkers. It, it's, it's just blocks. Like, you, you know, you drive up to the yeah. off-ramp, and it, it, you, there's just no way. It's reinforced concrete. Yeah. We need to think uh, from, from the perspective, yes, the guardrails, speed limitations, right, as you go into turns, things, using the highway, the highway analogy, and, and just making sure that, that we're being smart. One of the outcomes of this being building and retaining the trust of the public. So when you look at the technology, where do you expect it's going to go in the next few years? I mean, we were talking about quantum, and that's probably still, I would say, two, maybe three years off before deployable. That was a little optimistic, but where do you think the technology is going on this? Because we talked at the beginning about the the change in the NIST has found where you've gone from relatively inaccurate to really quite accurate uh, tech algorithms in, in many cases. So what, what 
because fingerprints right now, rolled and, and flat fingerprints, are at the 99% and, and above accuracy and a well mm-hmm. system. There's still a lot of interest in, in fingerprints. And in going to uh, contactless fingerprints, there's really two challenges. One is, it's, it's arguably the way it's defined by the, the statisticians and scientists, uh, another modality. Mm-hmm. Because you're not, in a sense, warping the fingerprint when you're rolling it over a plant. Yeah. You're taking a picture and you have to unroll it to where it's flat. I, I don't want to go too far into that, 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 that technology realm. The other one is we don't have a set standard for mm-hmm. context. So we're addressing that right now with uh, with, with NIST. We're, we're getting started on, on that effort. So I believe it's, it's very important to have good standards uh, and, and enforce them all geared toward ensuring we get a better result, which should support uh, the, the, the trust of, of, of the public. Um, standards, look, look over the face. There is no standard to measure the quality of a face image for a generic face matching system. Mm-hmm. All of the ones that, I mean, we, well, the ones that we use, it's all proprietary. And mm-hmm. because we don't want to be locked, necessarily locked into any one vendor, mm-hmm. we yeah. go to another. What we, we are uh, funding this and working with a range of components in mm-hmm. the interagency to come up with a standard for assessing face uh, images, not for how pretty they are, but how likely they would be to match uh, in a generic matcher. Which, which doesn't exist. So is this going to be a federal standard, or will it be broader than that, maybe have commercial use? or what, well, well, we, a Great point. We work through DHS S&T. They're the standards lead for S&T. Sure. And we go to NIST as we work in conjunction with FBI and DOD. They're interested as well. And then hmm. uh, ISO standard. We intend for this to, to eventually become, hmm. and it'll take a couple of years, but it, it's a, it's a, uh, it would be an international standard. One other aspect around, and this gets back to COVID, is people are wearing masks. So from the standpoint of, of occlusions, the, the mouth and nose provide a lot of great landmarks for the face recognition matches. And I realize each vendor has its own special way of doing things. It's not quite like face, or not quite like fingerprint matching with minutiae. But on the face recognition, again, we're working with NIST to uh, do more research in either collecting images with people with masks or simply painting a mask over the face and then use it with the, the database that they have in a closed network and evaluating the algorithms out that are out there to see how well they're, that they're doing. How, how well does that affect accuracy if you have – so I could see you've got a picture of a mask. Uh-huh. Some stuff, but does it go down dramatically? Can you compensate? I mean, <laughs> now if you talk to the vendors, they do really well with, with that necessarily <laughs> a number. The NIST folks say, in our heads, we've already come up with the test plan. As soon as we can get back into the building in Gaithersburg, Maryland, we, you know, we're, we're going to start evaluating this. So okay. the answer right now is we don't know. Is it is it a couple of percent? Is is it a large percent? I, I, I'm not sure. But the opportunity here is something that we've been looking at to do. It's just it's sped it up. Is periocular? Mm-hmm. Periocular is is not only the iris but the region around the eyes. There's lots of detail there, and even pre-COVID, uh, with with other people's um, 
their 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 outfits and and, and wearing sometimes yeah. you have an occluded face and all you've got is is that that periocular. Yeah. So that that's a that's a real opportunity for us and it's a it's another region that that we're exploring. What what would you say to people who worry about facial recognition? I mean, there's this larger fear of technology. I was thinking about when preparing for this call. I mean, the rate of change is so fast. It, it, that alone can frighten people. But what would you say to the people who worry about facial recognition technology? Okay, okay. Uh, a great point. A couple of points here. There, there are several organizations within DHS that are examining the application of facial recognition across missions and activities. And this work is constant. The technology is always tra- uh, changing and evolving. Uh-huh. I mentioned working with NIST on the space image quality standard uh-huh. so that we bring in not only pose, illumination, expression, but skin reflectivity. And this is really going back to the statisticians uh-huh. and, and scientists when you get into the racial and ethnic standpoints. Okay. So uh-huh. th- this is not a simple one. Just a couple of other things. Face image quality standard would be a, a, a foundation for our assessments for a vendor agnostic face image uh, uh, quality as they're created and evaluated. Uh, Another example, um, Customs and Border Protection is exploring facial recognition for their traveler verification service, uh, biometrically verifying a person's entry and exit from the U.S., and we're actively collaborating with TSA on a joint biometric strategy to to, uh, optimize the integration of biometric capabilities and architecture as we support their missions. A few other things here. Uh, mention again privacy. It's at the forefront and a foundational element of our work, and we're proud to have our own in-house privacy office and a close uh-huh. relationship with DHS privacy as we draft, analyze, and revise our, our privacy uh, documents. So we promised we'd keep you half an hour. We, we, we had just three more questions. The, the first one you can, you know, you can think about, but when we say privacy, what does privacy mean to you? I mean, what is it you want to do as a person moving the technology forward when you think of privacy? And not so much a definition, but what, what does it mean to me as we're executing? One is you only collect enough attributes, biometrically or otherwise, to get the job done. Uh-huh. Okay? Um and, and excuse me, that's a tough one because we're learning every day, and, and some things that you collect can be used for for other means. So, uh, but uh, uh, off the bat, you, you collect just the things that that you need. Beyond that, it becomes the level of control that that people have over their their own information. Okay, and it's I submit it's going to be different if it's an access control. Uh, I'm trying to get onto a network. Even okay. going into Amazon, right? I'm going to give my my email and a password, maybe some other uh, attributes uh, about me, uh, but I'm not going to give too much, and they're going to store it for X amount of time. If we're talking about screening for bad actors, particularly people that have come in, attempted to come into the uh, country illegally, there there are others other policies and restrictors on what data and how long that's retained, not just the image and the match results, but what that's linked to. And and we we just need to think through uh, from people's, 
an individual's control of the attributes that um, are collected on them, um, how yeah. long, or for what reason, and and just the, the larger just observation for me is this is the government who's part of uh, of our uh, our mission is to protect the public. And, and we're doing this from the perspective of protecting the public. Uh, it, it does get back to the public trust. It seems as though for a lot of people, they'll give more information to Facebook, Amazon, and, and other public, uh, publicly traded companies to get that benefit. I, I understand that. As long as people understand it, there has to be that trust. We're doing this uh, wow. and for the main part of protecting them. It's it's homeland security, public safety, and uh, really it, it, it's increasingly prevention of fraud. When you were talking, the word minimization popped into my mind, and then I thought, I have no idea how you'd even define minimization for this kind of technology. I can tell you minimization on signal collection. I have no idea how you do it here. Well, let's let me use another modality as an example of what they're doing in Europe. I'm very interested in Palm Bay. The the the, peop, the folks that build the systems are claiming again until we evaluate on a yeah, yeah. limited testing. It, it they claim its its accuracy is on the order of DNA because what you're doing is and the systems I'm looking at you shine a uh, infrared light on the hand it's reflected and you get the vein patterns which are very detailed lots of data points and and. It, it, to my understanding, having been over in Europe, you go into a lot of the soccer stadiums. If you opt in, you can use Palm Bay, which is contactless, okay, very fast, highly accurate to not only uh, debit an account to get in, but to uh, pay for your beer, uh, uh, buy uh, your jersey from your favorite player, okay. And in talking with them, they made it clear that in, in a, uh, almost all cases, the image is deleted. There's an image, and then you come up with a template based on that, and that's what's matched against the gallery. Okay. And, uh, and it's it, it's really the level and degree to which you're you're deleting that and not storing it. And if it is stored, is it on the device like the iPhone, or is it a, in a central repository? Mm -hmm. These are the questions that we wrestle with on on a daily basis. Anything with palm vein yet, we're just looking at that as a, a way of, of high confidence, high accuracy for, uh, for, for potential access control missions. So the sensors and the data structure behind it have gotten so sensitive and so accurate that you can start using attributes we wouldn't have thought of, you know, five years ago. Is that right? That, that, that's correct. And going back to privacy and policy and legal, if we're going to use it for other purposes, mm -hmm. that's what would go back through. And, and it's not just OBAM privacy. It's if it's with CBP data, because realize we don't own the data. We're, we're essentially stewards of the data. The data that comes from CBP is owned by CBP. So mm -hmm. all of the retention, the sharing, it's all done in conjunction with CBP. The mm -hmm. data from ICE is owned by ICE. CIS, USCIS is owned by them. State yeah. is, is owned by them. When you think of the challenges for this, when you think about moving this forward, what is the comes at the top of the list for you? We were talking about, I think, public acceptance when we started this, but 
what else? And public acceptance is a good one to talk about as well. Public acceptance certainly is there. One of the things that we didn't talk about, because it's all been around biometrics, realize we've got IDENT. We're moving to HART, Homeland Advanced Recognition Technology. It's it's a complete new architecture because of the scale. We've got to be flexible and scale up. And many of our challenges are are in the realm of the information technology, mm-hmm. the, the scale of storing the images, of the templates, of the match results, of the mm-hmm. analysis and, and, and linking, um, and who we're sharing it with, with very complex business rules. Again, we have to be very careful just across DHS, the interagency, in some cases down to state and local, and international partners. Uh, it's, it's a uh, significantly challenging IT Mm-hmm. Uh, challenge. So as we're talking about periocular and face and contactless, I'm just as interested in uh, both with the technology push and in some cases a pull as we increase our exchange with academia, mm-hmm. next generation processing, next mm-hmm. generation storage, the sheer storage that, that we're looking. Because uh, for our uh, next system, we, we're we uh, planning on going to uh, Amazon Web Services. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the GovCloud, the FedRAMP certified for, for security purposes. Mm-hmm. But even within that, as, as we add modalities or new variations of current modalities with potentially significantly increased uh, uh, transaction rates, way beyond, I'm foreseeing beyond 340,000 a day, we have to really think about, uh, and, and I, I think it's a challenge, not only the processing in the system, but the networks to handle the bandwidth for the things that, that we're talking about. So you're really doing the whole architecture for this. You're not just doing the collection technology. You're doing the data architecture behind it, the connectivity. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. A- a- across international, across the interagency, increasingly down to state and local who are, who are leveraging our, our work. John, I hate to say it, but this is giving me a headache. <laughs> As I try to think, I'm trying to think, how would I execute minimization in this environment where you have so much data, so many different uses, and so many different kinds of data? I mean, <laughs> that that's that that is what we're focusing on, mm-hmm. and and we're we're constantly trying to get the brightest and people on our staff. And along with that, we're building partnerships, like I mentioned, uh, DHS, S&T. We work with a number of federally funded research and development centers. Uh We've got some really sharp people who have been in this space, not only biometrics, but the identity space, uh, well over 10 years. Uh And and, uh, to to, uh, address these these challenges, take the very complex (laughs) – I'm trying to make it not too complex – and distill that down into – pieces that, that that we can work on in, in conjunction with. Okay. Well, um, anything we missed, anything you want to say at the at the end here? I mean, we covered a lot of ground, so yeah. what what did we miss? What do you want to say in conclusion? I, I just want to say uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. This, this is really the, the beginning to, to, to get the word out uh, with others. I, the facial recognition has unique advantages that we don't have in other modalities. And, and let's just be careful, not throw that away. Let's leverage the goodness there 
and address the, the gaps as we move on. I said this, uh, that was the last question, but I was kidding. Why do you think people default to uh, the roadblock approach? What, what, how can we get them past that? Because, you know, so I was thinking about it, actually it was a while ago, when cars first appeared, uh, they made someone walk in front of the car with either a red flag or a lantern so it wouldn't scare horses, which, of course, meant the car couldn't go any faster than a walking pace, kind of. <laughs> so it's, a, it's not a perfect analogy, and it, it sounds a little snarky, but wh- why do you think people fear this so much? What, what would uh, Why is the default position, let's put the brakes on? It, th- this is worthy of another conversation. I think in the in the beginning, it's the unknown about what's being done with the face image because people aren't talking to them and we're beginning to address that. So it's, it's, we've got your picture. We're doing some matching. It's, it's all behind the scenes and, and people aren't aware. I think that's one aspect of it that we're making preparations to do a better job. On the other end, this database match, John mm-hmm. Boyd firmly met at this GPS site at this time with mm-hmm. these other folks. And then what is that being used to, to make determinations about me? And, and uh, again, it's, it's uh, part of the unknown. And I think that's what people are having uh, con- concerns about, uh, among others. That's probably a good note to end on. This has been really fun, so we have to do it again. I, I greatly appreciate it, Jim. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.